0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show.
1: Hello listeners, Nathan Collier here with a short intro for today's episode. Today we're revisiting a wonderful conversation between Jim and David Falstein. Now at the time of this recording, David was the VP of Customer Success and Strategy here at Pursuit, though he's now moved over to lead our product team here as the VP of Product. David is a fascinating guy. He studied business and law at Michigan State. Uh, He's also a member of the Johnson & Johnson legal sourcing team prior to joining our team here at Pursuit. In this episode, you're going to hear David and Jim talk about AFAs, about the business of legal, and then together they'll uh, debunk some of the uncertainty around alternative fee arrangements. They'll discuss the challenges of moving toward a fixed fee model for law firms, and they're also going to talk about some of the challenges that the legal industry faces, especially when it comes to work-life balance and some of the things that lawyers face, really, both in-house teams and especially in law firms. So as Jim would say, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode.
0: David Folstein, Vice President of Customer Strategy and Success at Pursuit. Welcome to the show. This is going to be such an absolute treat. Thanks for joining me, David.
2: Jim, thanks for having me. I cannot wait. That's right. So, D-
0: David, I've been working up to this for a little while now. There's so much of a fantastic story to tell and I can't wait to share with the audience. But tell us a little bit about The David Folstein stories. Take us back to you've gone to law school, you've gone to business school, you had this idea around legal procurement. What is that all about? Tell us a little bit about that story.
2: So the story begins with, you know, I want to go to law school. I, you know, I'm I'm an ambitious guy. I'm hungry. I'm thinking, what do I want to do in with my career? Before I went to law school, I worked in a door-to-door sales job, knocking doors, selling dish network and direct TV, <laughs> literally door to door, managing a team of 20 sales reps. And I loved the competitiveness. I loved the business, the incentives. So I had that experience before I went to law school. So right when I was about to start law school, I started to think, maybe I don't want to use my law degree in a traditional way. Maybe I want to use my law degree in business. So I actually started to get really excited about the idea of doing a JD MBA so that I could get my masters in business and find some unique career path that combines law and business. So what career path was I going to find? I started talking to everybody. Hey, what are, what's out there? Like what really combines law and business? Every single person told me, nah, there's not really anything that combines law and business. (laughs) It's either you go the business path or you go the law path. It's one or the other. If you go to the law path, you're not really going to be prepared to go into business. You're just going to only learn how to be a lawyer. If you go the business path, you're not going to ever be able to go back to law because the law, the law firms will snuff and say, no, you got to go start back as a first year associate. So it was very much this discovery of, you know, I said, no, what, I'm still going to do it. So I ended up going to Michigan State and I was really, really fortunate that Michigan State had an amazing dual degree program with JD, uh, both law and business. Yep. Um, and so when I started down that discovery path, I started literally Googling, you know, how can I combine <laughs> law and business, started doing research. It's, and I thought, you know, Michigan State, their MBA program was number one in the country at supply chain. Every single company was coming to Michigan State to recruit for supply chain majors. I didn't care about supply chain, but I thought, well, is there an overlap between supply chain and the law? And the more I started to learn, I found, well, there's this thing called procurement that sounds a little bit like law. There's negotiation. You're talking to suppliers. You're, you're doing vendor contract negotiations. And then I started Googling legal procurement. Is that a thing? <laughs> is there a legal procurement thing? <laughs> and the first oh, thing
0: I so, see is... So, so tell us, what year are we talking about, Right, what, what year are we in right now? And- we
2: are in 2014. I started doing the discovery. Um... And then, and then I think 2015 was when I really started to dive into it further. I think okay. um, in 2015, I emailed – so I, I Googled um, legal procurement. I found the Buying Legal Counsel website, yep. which yep. you know led me to Sylvia Hodges Silverstein. She started the Buying Legal Counsel, which is a legal procurement industry trade organization. So yep. I find her email, and I'm like, she's never going to reply to me. I'm just a random law student. So I send her a random email, and it said – Hey, Sylvia, what do you think about the idea of starting a legal procurement company? Because me being <laughs> the young young lawyer, JDMBA, thinking, I'm just going to go start my own company in legal procurement if this is like an exciting new area. And she wrote back and right away and said, hey, this is a great idea. I think legal procurement is going to get huge. I think it's going to grow. And she had just started the BLC that year, or yeah. actually the year yeah. before that. Yeah. So it was just the timing of when I became interested in it really coincided well with with when she had just started that.
0: And not only that, I introduce you as the only person that I've ever come across that they did their thesis on legal procurement. Tell us about that.
2: Once I discovered, okay, this is a thing, legal procurement is something that could be pursued. I sought after roles in legal procurement. And so I ended up doing an internship with Johnson & Johnson in what else? The legal procurement team. Yep. And there may be only a one of a handful of companies at this time that even have a legal procurement team. Nobody yep. does legal procurement, yep. but because J&J spends a billion dollars on legal services, they kind of care about saving some money and, and yep. having some rigor. So after I, I did an internship with that internship was all about alternative fee arrangements. Actually, right. my director asked me, Brad Latman, we want you to create a should cost model for legal and do it, like, do it like I'm pricing out a tire. Figure out all the cost inputs to the, to the hourly rate and figure out what should, what's a true price for, what should, be, what should an hourly rate be? What would be a reasonable profit margin? What would an hourly rate be? So I went yep. down this discovery path from that internship. And after that internship, I was inspired to, to take that, those learnings even further. Um, I ended up doing a directed study with Professor Ken Grady, who yep. was a former general counsel and he was the perfect guy and he, you know, kind of, he had a ton of his knowledge about alternative fee arrangements. And I said, I want to write, I want to do my upper level writing requirement on alternative fee arrangements and continue the learnings from my internship. And I was fortunate to get to work with Sylvia directly on, you know, having read her articles, having worked with, I was fortunate to work with um, Marty Harlow and Justin Ergler. And, uh, you know, a lot of yep. people at GSK were willing yep. to share some of their time with me in that pursuit of, of discovering what is like the perfect alternative fee arrangement. And
0: a call out there to the to the GSK team and certainly the original team back then, and I think it was about 2007 or 8, where they really started off. This notion of a kind of a legal procurement and alternative fee arrangements moving away from the bill of law and managing their law firms on the basis of alternative fee arrangements and there's you know we know that Sylvia did a great case study at Harvard Business Review case study I think in 2011 or 12 or anyone anyway, around there so and that was probably David I think that was probably the beginning of a different modeling for way law firm services are being procured and some early insights if you like and the very the, the very beginning of alternative fee arrangement.
2: I think Sylvia ascribed that that they were really the founders of legal procurement where it was it the GSK um, the GSK department and and very much you know the first buying legal counsel conferences that we were going to back in 2015 2016 the GSK team they really were the leaders there that were kind of teaching other everyone else about this competitive bidding program. That they had and yep. what that meant and w- what the the right way to do alternative fee arrangements were, and so we started to create a pharma specific roundtable with other companies that had legal procurement teams to try to benchmark what were the best approaches, what were people doing.
0: So, David, the other story, another story I tell, of course, you were a, a, an early pursued employee. The way we met, of course, is that um, uh, Johnson Johnson was a very early customer of Pursuit, we were just starting to get off the ground. And then I saw, I saw somebody using the Pursuit platform better than anyone within Pursuit. So one of our customers, and that was you. Tell us about those early those early days and how that transitioned, if you like, from um, uh, working within the procurement department of Johnson & Johnson uh, to, to joining the Pursuit team.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting, interesting time where I was... Um... I was eager to find something that could help Johnson and Johnson make a much much bigger impact on a, w- a much wider spread yeah. of of work. You know, I think at the time the Johnson and Johnson legal procurement team had the ability to negotiate hourly rates. Yeah. So negotiating hourly rates was the key thing that we were doing all year long. It felt like we were negotiating rates with law firms, yep. T- saying they would ask for ten percent, we'd land at three percent or you know, somewhere in yep. the middle. And I said, there has to be a better way to have a bigger impact in here because they can just bill me, bill more hours. This just doesn't, yeah, like I can negotiate the rate. How do I prevent, how do I get cost predictability? Yeah. How do I control, truly control cost? And so I came across, you know, you had, you had reached out to us. We we got on a call, you showed me the Pursuit pursuit product. You um, you made it very clear that, that this was the tool that would enable us to implement alternative fee arrangements at scale, yep. you know, on a matter by matter basis, and um, I was really inspired by that idea. I didn't have any authority, of course, to buy anything <laughs> at the time, um, so I had to go back to my sales days and start knocking doors. <laughs> who do I need to talk to? Yep. Who's willing to try to run reverse auction? Yep. What door do I knock on? A lawyer that used to be at GSK who ran auctions before and said, "I want to run an auction." So we got um, a lawyer to just try Pursuit Out, a pilot, um, ran an auction. It was a 24-hour long reverse auction. Oh, that's a bit painful. With 150 <laughs> price drops. Wow. 150 price drops. Our entire office was surrounded around my computer. <laughs> and the, um, even the vice president at the time was like, I've never seen an <laughs> auction before. So I have no idea how we handle this situation. Like, what do we do? It was just an exciting, really exciting experience. And the results were sh- shared up the chain. The general counsel said, "You know, wow, what an amazing result! How how is it possible that a firm like this, that's such a prestigious, great this is a great firm? I'm shocked that they would drop their price yep. by 35. <sighs> yeah, like there's just no way that that they would do that." And that, you know, that kind of galvanized the rest of the department to say, okay, we, this is probably something we need to take another another look at.
0: I could hear that story time and time again, David. <laughs> it is a great story. And look, it's a story of what it takes sometimes in the early days, galvanizing the troops and then and then changing the world. There's no doubt, there's a lot of skepticism, David, around alternative fee arrangements. And it, it had a very checkered past. W- why do you think that's the case? And how do we change that?
2: I can actually answer that with one of my first memories of having met you at the Buying Legal <laughs> Counsel conference. Somebody asked, oh. "Somebody asked why won't law firms do more AFAs? And you stood up and yep. said, because we make way too much money. I'm a former partner at <laughs> a law firm. We're making way too much money, We're making millions of dollars a year. Why would we change that model? It's gotta be the yep. clients. And I, that was, yep. my, I said, yeah, it has to be the clients. But then to answer your question, why are the clients not doing more doing it more if it gives you them predictability? And the, yep. the answer that I've found is that they're scared of doing AFAs. Right. Yep. Um, why are they scared of doing AFAs? The biggest reason is they're scared of overpaying. They're right. so scared of overpaying. They're scared that I'm agree to a price and then the firm's gonna work half as many hours and now I've overpaid. And so that's probably the biggest, to me, the biggest reason that clients are fearful of AFAs is they're going to overpay. And that fear is even exacerbated by the fact that the legal work is so ambiguous. You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know if the case could settle. You don't know if it could be dismissed tomorrow. So how do you have a fixed price on something that can't be fixed? How do you have a fixed price on a timeline that is inherently going to change? And so being able to solve that problem is where we've been successful.
0: Great. Let's double click on that. Let's double click a little bit on that. What is it? What is that path then? How do and how does the industry solve the problem of the uncertainty of the fear of overpaying, the, the fear of having um, everybody unhappy because the model didn't quite work and you've got the law firm saying we spent two or three times the, the estimate on this. How, how do we reduce that fear? What are some of the strategies around it?
2: So when I was writing my thesis, the thing that was most clear to me when I was writing my thesis was none of the AFA approaches are are good. (laughs) None of the AFAs are great. Like Nobody likes any of them. You've got a capped fee, and the firms are still billing hourly. So you're still using the hourly bill. It doesn't give you true predictability. You've got a collared fee that's really complicated. You've got success bonuses, but then the clients are saying, wait, hold on, I'm paying you, but you know so why should yep. you also get a success bonus clients don't always love that don't always want to have to find yep. success and then you've got a fixed fee that's fixed and can't change but you have legal work that that is always changing so what it was yep. clear to me was that none of the AFA models that anyone was using were actually fit for purpose for legal work okay so yep. what i proposed in the paper was actually not using a caller on the number of hours that are billed but actually using a caller around the number of activities that we think are going to happen in the case. And by activities, I mean, the number of major cost driving things that are going to be done, like the number of depositions, the number of experts, the number of documents, put some assumptions around those major cost drivers in a quantified way, and then put a call around, basically a call around the number of those things. So a 20% caller around the number of depositions. If you assume there's 10 depositions, and there ends up being 13, well, that's a 30% change in the number of depositions. Now we need to adjust yep. the price. But if we say there's 10 yep. depositions and there's only 11, uh, it hasn't reached the trigger, so we keep the price the same. Yep. Having a buffer or a caller around the number of major cost drivers prevents the client from having to constantly renegotiate, so it makes the AFA easier to use solves the problem of being worried that you're going to over or underpay because if the number of things required is massively less, then we can reduce the price. And David, I know we
0: you know, we, we certainly have a company view that ultimately all legal work can be broken down into um, its cost drivers, its activities, and then well scoped around that. So we deliver the kind of predictability or certainly the, the clients and the law firms uh, obtain that predictability. Is that a fair statement for you that ultimately, you know, most um, different types of legal engagements can be broken down into cost drivers, activities, and can be scoped. And when those activities change in number, then that can be priced because each one of those activities um, has a, a, an agreed
2: price. Is that a is that a fair summary? It yes and no. Yes, as to the major things the major cost drivers know as to s- some of the smaller things. So for instance, I'm, I'm not going to tell the law firm how many cases they need to research when they're doing their strategic work for this litigation matter. I'm not going to tell them how many. Like That's something that the firms just need to assume, right? So there's certain tiny things, the pebbles, that you just don't, you can't make an assumption around. But the major things That are the true drivers of cost we can make assumptions around we can use data to look back and say hey a prior employment litigation matter typically has five depositions typically just has one expert typically has a trial that's only five days long i can go back and look at the data and then use that data to inform really strong as tight assumptions that very rarely need to be significantly changed
0: david i also tell a story you know, during my time of practice, you know, uh, a, a new significant arbitration um, or litigation matter would fall on my desk. The client would ask for an estimate, sometimes would ask for a fixed price, and I would duck and weave and balk and I would say, something like this, and I, it's, I can say down pat, there's no way that I can give you a fixed or probably even an estimate. I can give you a very broad range because litigation is like a war. I don't know what are the activities. I don't know what strategies are going to be thrown uh, at me. You've got to treat it like a war and we'll have to basically approach it the way we're going to give it everything that's going to be required And I can't and I can't tell you now. Um, what that's going to take. Um, what I now say is, well, what clients should have said to me is, hang on, Jim, you've been running these cases now for 20 years. Are you telling me that you don't actually have the data that tells you what are the activities, how long should it take, what um, what are the cost drivers and how can we then define those in a way that you can provide me with cost certainty so I can have a budget and I can report internally as to what this case is going to cost. But I I never used to have to have those discussions that usually ended up, ended at the, after I told my war speech, it's like a war speech, Um, then I could typically get away with a very broad estimate. It's between four and $8 million (laughs) dollars. Um, let's say. So um, are are those days still around or, um, or, or should they be dead and buried?
2: You're right. It's a war. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't need to be correct. We can make some assumptions based, reasonable assumptions based on data that says, look, nine times out of 10, this is what's going to be required. Sure. It might be that this matter ends up being The one time out of 10 that it goes off the rails and it's complete you know and that the scope does change but that's why that's the beauty of the material deviation approach that i was mentioning is like we don't need to be right we can be wrong with the assumptions and we already have pre-agreed prices for the major cost drivers such that if it turns out that there's three more experts that are ending ending up needing to be required because this war has taken off the war has the war has amplified we need three more experts i have a price per expert that i pre-negotiated so now i can just take that price apply it and i don't need to go back to the billable hour to make the adjustment i think a big thing clients were scared of or they'd say i have a fixed price the minute things change i'm going to throw the fixed fee out the window and go back to the billable hour and then they're they're like why did i go through months of pain to negotiate a fixed fee that I threw out the window, like the material deviation clause solves that problem. I don't need to go back to the billable hour. I can just pre-negotiate what the changes will be. There's a few paths that, that this war could take. I can predict what those paths are and agree on a price for for one of for all of those paths. So it, it's not um, it's not rocket science. It's just it just is a slightly different approach than anyone really had been been trying to take in the past.
0: One can see why the alternative fee arrangement approach has had a little bit of a bad rap in the past and bad experience because if it's been fundamentally misconceived or not structured in the way that we're talking about now, you, you can see if someone's put the work in to agree a fixed price and then a few assumptions blow out and suddenly the whole thing falls apart. You can see why there's pain associated with that approach. Once you're disciplined enough to identify what are the cost drivers, uh, what are the key activities and, and pricing those on a competitive basis then that ultimately most legal work and it won't be all legal but certainly most legal work can be scoped can be priced and you can get to a point of um, understanding what that should cost model should be and that's a bit of a nirvana isn't it in, in the kind of in the legal procurement world we talk about that should cost model um, but ultimately i think Um, it's all based on the discipline and the data um, uh,
2: around scope. Yeah, it's based on the discipline, the data, and having a consistent taxonomy. And so the fact that Sally now has developed a standard taxonomy that everyone can adopt, we can now and have done tagged all of our matters in the the platform. And we can tell you, here's what an average patent litigation matter in the Western, Western District of Texas costs you know, that's the nirvana, we can tell you what a deposition costs, you know, so the more data we get, and and the further down this journey we go, you know, I think the easier and easier the scoping problem becomes, um, as it's more data driven, for sure. So if you were
0: to pick out the the top one or two challenges that you think the industry has, in terms of its a transition, transition away from hourly billing to fixed and certain fee arrangements. what are the what are the key challenges, and what does the industry have to do? Who has the burden to help drive the change to move away from hourly billing?
2: For the reason you eloquently gave <laughs> the first buying legal counsel, the clients have the burden to make the change because the firms the firms you know, don't have a reason to change they're profiting at a massive margin so the clients need to be the ones to drive that change the the biggest challenges are number one there's a knowledge gap knowledge and a process gap Um, it's just too difficult to to implement afas at scale because you need to get firms started on the work really quickly and negotiating an afa is hard starting work on an hourly rate is super easy i pick up the phone say get started I don't need to give yes. you a scope. I don't need to give you a scope of work. You can just start billing. <laughs> so for that reason, the speed to which you can yeah. engage on an hourly rate is a huge bar- barrier. So you need you need to have a, a, a tool, a process, the knowledge to be able to execute at speed and at scale. That's in the yeah. first problem. And then the second problem is the enforcement. Yeah. None of the e-billings, our, our industry is all based on the billable hour. So you can't really easily enforce a fixed fee in the billing systems today, as they're currently constructed. I know that they're all scrambling and trying, um, but it's still, it's still, I think, a challenge yep. for for clients that really implement a lot of them. There's custom task codes, there's, it's workaround after workaround to try to make that billing work. So I think that we, we as an industry, need more fit-for-purpose solutions for the AFAs to really take off.
0: There's no greater barrier than creating more work for people more work than they currently have let's broaden the discussion out a little bit david what are some of the changes that you see in the on the horizon
2: for the legal industry so i see a future where work is much much easier across every industry we have access to information so easily and we have the ability to templatize things so so easily um it behooves law firms to be pushing clients towards the fixed fee model because how are they going to be able to justify the amount of time it takes to continue to do things that technology can help them to o- automate? And and the clients, yeah. the, the view from the client is, we have the ability to make things easier. You have AI, you can do your job. You have the research tools, you keep getting Westlaw, Lexus, everything keeps getting better and better, easier and easier. Such that the legal profession gets easier. So, for that reason, how does how do the law firms sustain the the amount of hours that sustain the revenue? If things are taking fewer and fewer hours, how can they sustain their revenue? And yep. the way that they do that is with, through fixed fees. You move away from the billable hour, and now you say, "Here's the cost of this service. Here's the value I'm delivering to you. For if we win this patent dispute, is this much money? Therefore, my service is this dollar amount." and getting a little bit more like a a service provider here's the fix here's the fees here's the fee for this service here's the fee for that service because then they will have the incentive to implement the types of tools and technology that makes doing that work extremely easy and quick and they will continue to increase their profit margin that way otherwise the industry won't really progress at the rate it could because it's you know bill more hours Uh, so i think that that's selfishly as somebody that cares a lot about getting rid of the billable hour I think that's like a huge I think a huge evolution that will continue what are some of the personal
0: impacts we see that you know that we'd like to reverse
2: um, and undo in the industry talk a little bit about that I was talking to Um, a lady may have been a date, you know, I was, I was getting to know her and she was, we were, we were getting to know each other. And and it turns out that, um, I asked a terrible question, which was, what was your last relationship? What was the, what was your last relationship? Like that was not the right question, but it, (laughs) it led to a very interesting story where she was telling me about a divorce. And this was the, I, I've never been so angry after she told me this, this story, because she tried to get a divorce. She, tri- she had a lot to gain from that divorce financially. Um, and she had very little money uh, to pursue the divorce, to, to pay the lawyers to, to run the divorce. And yeah. the lawyers were billing by the hour. The billable hours kept racking up and because the process was kept dragging out because the lawyers on the other side kept delaying and delaying and dragging it out, she ran out of money and she had to essentially fire the lawyer and to represent herself, and she was not able to recover nearly as much as she thought she was owed, and she paid twice the twice the total cost for a divorce that's an average cost for divorce in California, and essentially didn't get the didn't get the divorce, didn't get the outcome that she wanted. Like that model is just frustrating. I, I remember I had braces uh, in high school, then I got them off three years later. That I my jaw grew, and they said you need to get braces on again. And I'm in college, I'm like, I am not getting braces on in college. I'm 21 years old. Are you kidding me? There's zero chance I'm getting something and then not getting the outcome. Getting the braces and then not getting the actual outcome. Getting the divorce but not getting the outcome. There's nothing worse than paying for something than not getting the results. And for that reason, I think the billable hour is a completely flawed system. It's just a painful, let alone all the psychological problems.
0: Certainly in your experience and what you've seen... About the poor mental health outcomes uh, associated with the billable hour, what have you seen? What have you experienced in the industry?
2: Like, I'm so thankful every day that I work for Pursuit. Although I could probably end up working the hours of, of a lawyer, I <laughs> <laughs> but it's because I like what I'm doing. Whereas Do I-, I talk to some of my friends who graduate from law school and they work at work at law firms and they're working they're grueling working grueling hours and they're working so many you have to work you know so many more hours than what you can ultimately bill and your entire incentive model is around the number of hours you can bill and so it just propagates a culture where you know working more hours is a good thing doing your work and taking tons of time to do it is the outcome that they're seeking and it, everyone that i know that is in that mentality is miserable in that mentality the suicide rates among, the, I was shocked to hear that the suicide rate amongst the legal profession is amongst the highest, you know. So yeah. making extra money, you know, money can't buy happiness. It really can't. You know, you can make a lot of money, but if you don't love what you're doing, you're not going to be happy. And I, we see that with the the statistics on depression and suicide in the legal industry.
0: I think the official stat is almost five times. So um, someone in the legal profession is almost five times more likely to commit suicide than the national average in the US. So that's a horrific statistic for any industry, let alone for the legal industry, given the nature of the talent uh, that it's able to attract. To me, a model that perpetuates, if you like, the kind of misery (laughs) associated with being judged by reference to and succeeding by reference to or getting promoted by reference to the number of hours you can bill, number of hours, often not on meaningful work. Whatever kind of perpetuates that, and I think the, the, the profitability in the law firm model perpetuates that, that can't, that can't be sustainable, can it? That can't be an overall benefit. For the legal industry, the externalities that um, are around that model, that's got to change, doesn't it?
2: It has to change. Why would you want to be why, it's, why would you want to be disincentivized from doing your work more quickly? if I can com- yeah. complete the same work at the same quality in half the time, why would I want to be punished for that or disincentivized to do that? like that just doesn't make any sense. It's just um, yeah. It's, it's got to change not only for the legal industry it's got to change in consulting it's got to change in a number of other industries that rely on the billable hour as the main driver of of the success
0: david i'm going to wrap up with asking you some of my favorite questions on the po- this podcast the first one the hardest thing that you've ever done which you're prepared to share with us personal or professional
2: I'll go with passing the California bar exam was one of the, one of the toughest. That was a painful process. And what was more tough was having to go to a law library in Southern California when it was 110 degrees every day, carrying a giant bag of books that that was a a painful time, but uh, we got through it. (laughs)
0: That was tough, was it? Well, I'm glad you didn't say. Well, the early days of pursuit. That was. I really thought about that tough. one. I'm that that actually might have been harder. <laughs> I think. I think being. Is that a yeah, top?
2: I think. Actually, three? you told me on my. I think it's. <laughs> hey, these are these customers. Figure out how to make them successful, and then go lead six webinars in a month. Okay, <laughs> I'll figure out how to do that. <laughs>
0: So I usually ask this question of someone who's, let's say, more has had more time in their career, David, these next two questions, but I'm going to ask you anyway. First, what have you spent too much time worrying about, which on reflection is not time well spent? And I'm going to wrap in the second question, too, because sometimes they overlap. Advice that you'd give to your 22-year-old self—you're not that far off that right now. I think you're probably about 30, but I'm. So, what are your answers to those those two questions, David?
2: I was fortunate to be able to have great mentors and also bosses that made me feel safe and secure in my roles, and also empowered me to do a job that was bigger than what I had maybe had had the experience of done, or, you know, empowered me to say, Hey, you've never done this before, yeah. but I believe in you. You can go figure this out and do it. I think having a a boss like that is so great. And it's like one of the most enjoyable things you can have, honestly, in a career is having somebody that truly just takes you in and says, you, like, I believe in you. You can, you can do it. Give people the white space. I think you even called it white space to go out and achieve yeah. it. And I think that what some people younger in their career is they don't take risks taking a risk leaving a big corporate and coming to pursuit it was a risk but it really wasn't and it was a risk worth even if it didn't work out it would have been a risk worth taking I would have learned you would have learned something from that i think you need to always think of any yeah. risk as an opportunity to either win or learn
0: i'm glad to call that out david i mean it is hard in those early days in the when you're early in career the the safe well-trodden path is such an attractive path and you can absolutely see you know where you know, and the law firm is a particular one and certainly for the first few years I don't discourage that at all because it's an environment where you do learn the the trade and so forth Um, but probably not be surprised to know is that that theme about not taking enough risks early in your career that is a theme I consistently hear Um, certainly with the general counsels that I've had on this podcast and they're in their 40s, 50s and 60s, they all talk about being a little bit more courageous in those early years and taking those risks and being confident that their drive and their motivation is going to get them through. But those risks creating, you know, some of the opportunities that you're talking about. And uh, I'm glad you've said it too, finding mentors, finding people, who do believe in you a bit more than you believe in yourself, and create that white space? Um, that's that's where the magic happens, and that's where the growth um, happens. And as always, I say, you know, comfort is the enemy yeah. <laughs> of growth. So being able to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, uh, and the earlier you can do that in the career, I think the the greater the accelerant. For that career.
2: One other thing was there is the opportunity to do like a hard job and get your hands dirty can be such a huge trust builder in your body. You know, when I first started, I was, hey, answering support tickets on a Saturday at the beach, you know, and it's (laughs) it's like not always the glamorous, sexy thing, but I go from, you know, being you know, 29 years old and like, just, Hey, figure out how to make a customer successful too, you know, within three years, I'm leading a team of 21 people and I'm managing and I'm growing and I'm learning and like the ability to like, to prove that you can do the tough jobs such that you can teach the next person that comes along, I think is a really, really important thing to think about. And then the courage you're talking about extends, not just to taking risks, but you need to be courageous enough to have your own personality. I think when you're young in your career, you want to be a cookie cutter professional. You don't want to say the wrong thing. And on every meeting, you're kind of the same robotic. The people that can flourish are the ones that let their personality out and have a certain style and a certain way of working that becomes their, and and their unique authentic self allows them to be be good at what they're naturally good at. You know, and I think too many young people Kind of don't let their true personality show until maybe too late, you know, or you know they learn that too late.
0: I love that, and I've heard that before being comfortable with who you are and finding who you are um, uh, uh as early as you can of being comfortable with that, that will let you, I think, do exactly what you said, I said because oh. the, the sooner you do and the sooner you're comfortable with that, the sooner you're re- actually comfortable de- to develop that style, that persona. Because there's nothing worse than being someone else. Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrible place, and, and and for many of us, for you know, big chunks of our career, we kind of we feel like we've got to be someone, else, and we don't give us, the, us ourselves the opportunity to actually find and let flourish who we actually are. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm super glad you have called that out. One final question, and I've only introduced this. Um, Uh, In the last few episodes, but the amount of time in seconds between when you wake up and when you check your emails, David, (laughs) less or more than 30 seconds.
2: I'm I'm sad to say it's probably less (laughs) than 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) What did Jim email me today? (laughs) (laughs)
0: well david you're in good company um that's the most popular answer so far so david falsane it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show um this is going to go down an absolute treat i'm sure the audience is going to
2: love it thanks so much for having me jim it's been wonderful working for you and talking to you today thank you
0: fantastic looking forward to great successes in the future david bye-bye for now thank you listeners for tuning into the show for more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T We'd love to hear from you.